today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medical legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is Saltwater Part 1, where we'll discuss the diagnosis and management of hyponatremia. In this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Recently, an article was published in JAMA titled Diagnosis and Management of Hyponatremia, and this article does a pretty good job of summarising what is an absolutely enormous topic. Be sure to check out the link in our show notes. After reading this article, we both thought that hyponatremia would be a really useful topic to cover as it's something that we encounter very regularly in clinical practice and whose correct management can actually have a significant impact on patient outcomes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Now, hyponatremia is defined as having a serum sodium level of less than 135 milliequivalents per litre and according to the article in JAMA, it affects approximately 5% of adults and up to 35% of hospitalised patients. In the vast majority of instances, hyponatremia results from a body's inability to manage water. It's also important to note that in healthy people, the ingestion of water does not lead to hyponatremia. So before we start talking about the diagnosis of hyponatremia, there are a few pathophysiological concepts we need to cover, but rest assured, we'll do it quickly. We will try our best. (laughs) The first is serum osmolality. Osmolality is the concentration of dissolved electrolytes and particles per weight of solvent, and in Australia is measured in millimoles per kilo. In the serum, sodium and its anions are by far the largest contributors to the serum osmolality, but the other particles that contribute are potassium, blood glucose, and urea. We can calculate the serum osmolality with the following equation. Osmolality equals brackets, two times the sodium concentration, close bracket, plus the glucose concentration plus the urea concentration, where all parameters are in millimoles per litre. It's worth mentioning that the doubling of sodium accounts for the negative ions associated with sodium, and the exclusion of potassium approximately allows for the incomplete dissociation of sodium chloride. If ethanol is present in the patient's system, this too gets added to the equation above, but the serum ethanol is multiplied by 1.25 if measured in millimoles per litre, or by 270 if measured in milligrams per deciliter. Tonicity, also called effective osmolality, refers to the contribution to the serum osmolality by solute that has low cell membrane permeability. When it comes to the blood serum, the components that have low membrane permeability are sodium, its anions, and glucose. Why is this important? Because these components cause transcellular water shifts. In contrast, urea and alcohol both have high membrane permeability and so aren't included when we calculate serum tonicity. The equation to calculate tonicity is as follows. Tonicity equals, in brackets, two times the serum sodium concentration, closed brackets, plus the glucose concentration where all parameters are in millimoles per litre and tonicity is measured in millimoles per kilogram. 
Now, as mentioned earlier, hyponatremia in most instances arises from the body's inability to manage water. Ultimately, water homeostasis is dependent on receptors within the brain's third ventricle that respond to serum tonicity and angiotensin II, and they achieve homeostasis by regulating the body's water intake by thirst and water excretion via the release of antidiuretic hormone, also known as vasopressin. Antidiuretic hormone is made in the hypothalamus and released from the pituitary in response to hypertonicity, which is an osmotic stimulus, and decreased effective arterial blood volume, which is a non-osmotic stimulus. It promotes water retention by activating antidiuretic hormone receptors in the nephron's collecting duct, which causes the insertion of water channels or aquaporins in the apical membrane and thus increasing water permeability and reabsorption. Other non-osmotic stimuli of antidiuretic hormone release include nausea, pain, acute stress like psychosis or exercise, and the post-operative state and drugs such as opioids and antidepressants. Okay, so now that we've refreshed ourselves on some of the relevant physiology, let's move on to the diagnosis of hyponatremia. Truthfully, in anesthesia, the most common way we discover hyponatremia is by checking preoperative bloods, often before we've even met the patient. We often overlook the symptoms that may be associated with hyponatremia. That said, it's worthwhile taking the time to actually look for the symptoms in these patients. A patient's symptomatology depends on the speed with which the hyponatremia develops, the duration of and the severity of the hyponatremia as well. Symptoms are more common in patients with hyponatremia that develops in less than 48 hours because of an inability to compensate with brain volume adaptation, which is a slow process that corrects hypotonicity-induced brain swelling. Symptoms of acute hyponatremia vary and range from mild, nonspecific symptoms like headache, nausea, vomiting and weakness, to more severe and potentially life-threatening presentations like somnolence, seizures or cardiorespiratory distress. Acute severe hyponatremia can result in permanent brain damage, respiratory arrest, brain herniation and death. Now, interestingly, menstruating women are at higher risk of experiencing severe symptoms when they develop acute hyponatremia. And in truth, I have absolutely no idea why. <laughs> I can't answer that one No. <laughs> Chronic hyponatremia often presents a little differently to acute hyponatremia because of brain volume adaptation. And it's worth noting that the presence of this adaptive process increases the risk of osmotic demyelination. Hypotonicity-induced water entry into brain cells results in cerebral edema, which may reduce cerebral blood flow due to the fixed-volume nature of the human skull. Prompt electrolyte and water loss from brain cells can reduce the degree of swelling, and this adaptive process of brain cell volume reduction occurs over about two days with the loss of organic osmolites like glutamate and water from brain cells. It is the body's attempted correction of this brain swelling that sees a different picture of symptoms. Mild chronic hyponatremia in older adults is associated with cognitive deficits, gait disturbances, and an increased rate of falls and fractures. Chronic hyponatremia with a serum concentration of less than 125 millimoles per litre in a prospective study of 298 patients was associated with symptoms like nausea, vomiting, confusion, headache, and in a small number of instances, seizures. The seizures most commonly occurred in patients with extreme chronic hyponatremia with a serum sodium of less than 110 millimoles per litre and a history of seizures. All right, so we have a patient with hyponatremia, so how do we go about sorting out the cause? Ultimately, our approach should follow a logical progression, and our first step is to measure the patient's serum osmolality by a blood test. 
Patients with a low serum osmolality of under 275 millimoles per kilo have hypotonic hyponatremia. Those with a serum osmolality within the normal range of 275 to 295 millimoles per kilo have isotonic hyponatremia. And patients with a high serum osmolality of over 295 millimoles per kilogram have hypertonic hyponatremia. The first subclassification is important as the list of causes for both hypertonic and isotonic hyponatremia are comparatively much smaller than those for hypotonic hyponatremia. And indeed, the vast majority of patients with hyponatremia will have a low serum osmolality. Hypertonic hyponatremia is caused by hyperglycemia. Raised serum glucose increases the serum's tonicity and results in water being pulled out of the cells, thus expanding the extracellular volume and subsequently lowering the serum sodium concentration. Hyponatremia can be attributed to hyperglycemia if the corrected serum sodium is normal, and this corrected serum sodium is calculated by adding 2 milliequivalents per litre to the serum sodium for each 5.5 millimoles per litre that the serum glucose is elevated. The other cause of hypertonic hyponatremia is after the administration of mannitol. Isotonic hyponatremia has two main causes. Firstly, the administration of exogenous solutes, and secondly, pseudohyponatremia. Exogenous solutes include mannitol, which you'll note can also cause hypertonic hyponatremia, intravenous immune globulins, which are suspended in hypertonic mannitol, maltose, or sucrose, non-conductive surgical irrigation solutions like glycine, sorbitol, and mannitol, which are used during TERP or TURBT and hysteroscopy, and histidine, tryptophan, ketoglutarate or HTK cardiopulmonary bypass prime during open heart surgery. When mannitol and IVIGs are administered, particularly in the presence of impaired kidney function, retention of these sugars leads to the passage of intracellular water down its concentration gradient into the extracellular fluid. Non-conductive surgical irrigants and HTK prime directly increases the extracellular volume without adding any additional sodium. Pseudohyponatremia is actually a laboratory artefact associated with certain analyzers that rely on indirect iron-selective electrode technology, and it occurs in the presence of either hyperlipidemia or hyperproteinemia. Though it's exceptionally rare, it should be suspected in patients that have lipemic serum, obstructive jaundice, or patients that have plasma cell dyscrasias like myeloma or who receive intravenous immunoglobulins. In the event that pseudohyponatremia is suspected, measurement of serum sodium should be undertaken with direct iron-selective electrodes, and this technology is utilized by most point-of-care bedside analyzers. As these patients do not actually have true hyponatremia, their correct diagnosis is important so as to avoid exposing them to unnecessary treatment and its associated potential complications. Okay, so to revise quickly, our first step in diagnosing hyponatremia is to measure the serum osmolality. From here, we're going to focus on patients that have hypotonic hyponatremia, as they represent the largest proportion of patients by far. And this is also the main focus of the JAMA article. The next step is to further subclassify the patient's hypotonic hyponatremia by their volume status. They're either hypovolemic, euvolemic, or hypervolemic, and we do this with a focused history and examination. I'm sure it goes without saying, but if you don't have a serum osmolality, just start with a history and examination. Good point. 
The key aspects to ascertain from these patients are as follows. So first, a history of electrolyte-rich fluid loss like vomiting, diarrhea or with diuretic therapy as these may indicate hypovolemia. In these patients, examination may elicit signs of volume depletion like reduced skin turgor, a low JVP orthostatic or persistent hypotension, and tachycardia, although it's also worth stating that physical examination has a low sensitivity and specificity in diagnosing hypovolemic hyponatremia. The second is a history of low protein intake or high fluid intake. Thirdly, a thorough assessment of past and current medical conditions that includes questions about the following things. Malignancy, CNS disease, pulmonary disease, HIV infection, heart failure, hepatic failure, and plasma cell dyscrasias. Fourth is the use of medications that are associated with hyponatremia, including thiazide and thiazide-type diuretics, mannitol, intravenous immunoglobulins, desmopressin or DDAVP, ecstasy, and medications acting on the central nervous system, including antidepressants, anti-seizure medications, and antipsychotic drugs. Uh, so number five, very recent surgery. Six, examination yielding signs of peripheral edema or ascites, which can be a result of heart failure, cirrhosis or renal failure. Seven, symptoms and signs of adrenal insufficiency or hypothyroidism. Eight, a history of previous episodes of hyponatremia. And nine, a history of any symptoms the patient may be experiencing in an attempt to determine the rapidity of onset of the hyponatremia. Now, at this point in the assessment, even if we don't have a serum osmolality to help us, we should have a mental list of potential causes for the patient's hyponatremia based solely on our history and examination. It's worth stating that the list of possible causes of hypotonic hyponatremia is absolutely enormous, but the JAMA article has a fantastic summary table of the causes on page 285, and we thoroughly recommend you check this article and this table out, as we're not going to list every single cause of hypotonic hyponatremia. At this stage in our diagnostic voyage, the steps we take really depends on the patient's volume status, whether they have hypovolemic, euvolemic or hypervolemic hypotonic hyponatremia. The JAMA article has a fantastic and easy to interpret flow diagram on page 284 that we highly recommend you look at. Ultimately now, the processes we go through helps determine the underlying pathophysiology causing the hyponatremia, which then points us to a much smaller and more manageable list of differential diagnoses. Now, interestingly, this article advises that physical examination used to diagnose hypovolemic hyponatremia has a low sensitivity of 50 to 70% and a low specificity of 30 to 50%. It is for this reason that the European guideline recommends measurement of the urine osmolality and urine sodium concentration prior to physical examination. But in these guidelines, the authors recommend combining clinical history, physical examination and assessment of extracellular fluid volume to determine the volume classification for hypotonic hyponatremia. They also recommend very early on in the patient assessment to exclude hypoglycemia and other causes of non-hypotonic hyponatremia. And remember, there are only a handful of these. So now, based on our history and examination and exclusion of causes of non-hypotonic hypovolemia, we now know whether our patient has hypovolemic hyponatremia euvolemic hyponatremia or hypervolemic hyponatremia. It is from here that we then go on to measure the urinary sodium concentration, urine osmolality and urine specific gravity. But since we've well and truly run out of time this episode, we'll continue this discussion in part two of our hyponatremia series. 
So this was a really informative, albeit quite heavy discussion on today's episode of Deep Breaths. As always, you can listen to us from most podcasting platforms, so be sure to tell your colleagues about us. Fellows and consultants, don't forget to claim CPD for listening. And if you have any questions or comments, please drop us an email at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths. Deep Breaths.